A great song for the questions and answers for today as we're going to be looking at questions related to salvation that uh, you have asked and we aren't going to quite be able to get through all of them but we'll get through some and race through them. In seminary I learned that one of the most important things related to understanding the Bible and the key to finding what the Bible says is to ask good questions and you have asked good questions and um, you have asked many good questions about 80 of them to be exact. And so if we spent a week on each of them, that would get us to about a year and a half worth. So we are not going to do that, just so you know. We are going to uh, race through and uh, give you answers. Now, some of the answers that we give, because I can't go through them in a lot of depth, will probably not be very satisfactory to some of you. You'll think, gosh, I wish he would talk more about this or that or whatever. I will... uh, encourage you to get the tapes from the basic Bible doctrine class on man, sin, and salvation, where we spent five weeks going over the questions that that we're going to race through in just an hour here. So um, if you have more questions, you want more scriptures, there's a study guide, there's tapes, make sure you get the tapes for man, sin, and salvation, not just salvation. Because if you don't understand man and sin, you can't understand salvation. Because salvation is God's response to sinful man. And so it's very important that you understand the depth of sin and how sin has infected us and affected us so that you can understand why God saves us the way he does. So we're just going to jump in this morning and answer this question. Please explain the difference between election and predestination. That is such an easy question. There's some good ones. Well, let's just tell you about the difference. Actually, the difference is pretty easy. It's understanding you know, how it all works that's a little more difficult. Election is a term that is used in the Bible to describe God's Picking certain people for salvation. It is when God chooses a person to be saved. It's often translated chosen or chose instead of elect. And it is a term used to just describe that God, before the foundation of the world, selected who he would save. Now, let me just give you a couple scriptures. If you were to turn to Matthew 24... Uh, Verses 21 through 31, this is in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is answering the disciples' questions about what will be the sign of his coming in the end of the age. And um, he is explaining what will happen at the very end of the age when he returns and different things happen right after the Great Tribulation. And in verse 21, he says this, For then there will be great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of those God chose Before the foundation of the world for salvation, those days would be cut short. That's what he's saying. Then he says, if anyone says you behold, there is the Christ or there he is. Do not believe him for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then he talks about a few more signs. And then he goes down and says this in verse 30. And when the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So he just mentions it three times in that one text. That's why I picked it. In Romans 8.33, Paul says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In Colossians 3.12, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, chosen of God. The scriptures just 
teach just flat out, undeniably, that God elects and chooses certain people for salvation. I have run into certain people at times who say, well, I I don't believe in election. So you don't believe the Bible. I, I believe the Bible. Well, what do you do when it says God elects us and God chooses us? Well, I just don't believe that. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. It just says it. Now, you may not understand why or how or or the details about it, but the Bible teaches it, and that's just all there is to it. The Bible teaches salvation is first and foremost a act of God's choosing certain people to salvation. It teaches that those who are saved are God's elect or his chosen ones. Now, predestination is a similar word, describes something similar to election, but it's a little different. Election describes God's picking and choosing certain people. Predestination describes his plan to save them, not his actual picking. And there's just a little bit of difference. It is used to describe God's plan that he made before the foundation of the world to save those he chose. And a good text to turn to would be Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. And this is what you would read if you turn there. In verse 29 it says, For those whom he foreknew, speaking of God, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, He also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is a great text because it shows who the initiator of this predestinating is. He predestined some to be conformed. It's his plan to have some conformed to the image of his son. And he says, these he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Foreknowledge, when he says, by the foreknowledge of God, is to know somebody intimately. It is to fore, to fore or beforehand have an intimate relationship with somebody. It is not God looking into the future, seeing who will save him, and then going, or um, be saved, and then say, well, they're going to be saved, and therefore I'm going to choose them. No. Men on their own do not seek God. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit later. But it is clear that what this is talking about is God looks into the future and plans out who he is going to save based off of a decision he made before the foundation of the world. Men on their own, according to Romans 3.10 and following, do not see God. Romans 3.10 says, there are none who seek after God. There are not even one. They don't seek God. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. But let's look at another scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 5 and 11, it talks about uh, God's predestination, his predestinating plan to bring the elect to salvation. Now, he is speaking um, to those believers at Ephesus, and he says this, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And it's very important to note that predestination has nothing to do with us except we are the recipients of the plan. It is always according to the kind intention of his will, not our will. Other texts like Acts 13.48 where Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to these um, uh, group of people. And listen to what it says. Now this predestination is not, um, is not mentioned in the text. But just listen to what it says. It describes predestination. When the Gentiles heard this, that is they heard the gospel preached by Paul and Barnabas. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now listen to this. And then it says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were aligned with God's predestinating plan, those people believed. So the difference between predestination and election is election describes God's choice of who he's going to save and predestination describes his 
plan to save? And there were two related questions which asked this. Where does free will start and end in this? And a similar question, do we choose Christ by free will or are we predestined? Because those questions, of course, are related. Um, You can see um, where they're going with these just by reading the question. Well, both of these questions are founded upon some unbiblical assumptions. Both of these questions assume we have a free will, a term not found in the Bible. We have a will and we can choose certain things, but what things can we choose? Do we have unlimited free will? Also, the second question seems to contrast us choosing Christ by our own free will and God choosing us and predestinating us to salvation as if the two were mutually exclusive. And they are not. They are not contrasted. They are complementary. So let's just look at this. Let's talk about free will. And a lot of people have a problem with this, too, because they want to make people just totally free. I can do anything I want. I can choose everything I want. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the master of my own destiny, and I have to have choice, and I have to do this and that. Well, let's just see what the Bible says, and then that will end the discussion. We need to understand no one, not even God himself, has unlimited free will. Not even God has unlimited free will. Can God lie? No. Titus says he is the God who cannot lie. Can God tempt people to sin? Can God break his promises? Can God do evil? No. Can God ever contradict his nature? No. God is not free ultimately either. He cannot do what he cannot do. And so even God does not have limited freedom. Of course, God is, God is more free than anyone else, but his freedom is not unlimited. He cannot contradict his nature or not lie or break his promise or whatever. Now, in the same way, we are even more limited in our freedom. Let me ask you this. Could you fly to Mars right now on your own power and survive in space? Could you turn yourself into a bird, a chair? Could you transport yourself to the other side of the United States right now? No. Well, I thought you were free. Well, you're not free to do those things, are you? So what are you free to do? Well, as a believer, you have more freedom than an unbeliever. Because as a believer, you are freed from the bondage of sin. But as an unbeliever, you are in bondage. All of our freedom is limited, but the unbeliever is extremely limited. I just ask you this. Is a man in a prison free? Is he free? Well, he can walk around his cell. He can rattle the bars. He can, uh, you know, do things within his little cage. But would we call that man free? No, we would say that man is in bondage. That man's incarcerated. He's in prison. And this is how all men are before coming to Christ. Believers have more freedom. Unbelievers have basically no freedom to do anything that pleases God. And let me just show you how this is. Why does man exist? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That is our reason why we exist. We exist because we are to know God and glorify God by obeying his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants us to do. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which is a very critical text. And I'm, again, this is just, uh, we're, we're going through these quickly. This is not the end of the discussion, mind you. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14... Paul is speaking how God's Spirit allows believers to understand the things of the Spirit and the Word of God, but that how unbelievers, he calls them the natural men here, um, cannot understand certain things. And look at what he says in verse 14. He says, But a natural man, that is an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and notice what it says, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So if you are an unbeliever, you cannot understand the spiritual import and get the spiritual nutrition out of the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God, and we aren't going to go through the whole text here, is interpreted by the aid of the Holy Spirit. If you are spiritually dead and you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about um, how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, he he contrasts the unbeliever who lives in the flesh and the believer who lives in the spirit. And notice what he says in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh... But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh, here we go, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And then he says in verse 8, And those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. What is the chief end of man? To know God, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. What can't the unbeliever do? Know God, enjoy God, and give Him glory. So the very purpose of his existence, he cannot fulfill. So he's free to do everything he wants, like live in a constant state of rebellion against God. Now, if you want to call that freedom, you can call that freedom if you want. I call it bondage, blindness, slavery to Satan and sin. And that is what the scriptures teach. Now, once you, of course, you are saved, then what's great is you are freed from the bondage of sin, you are freed from your old taskmaster, Satan. And now, because God has worked in your life, you can now glorify God. You can now enjoy God. You can now understand God's word. You can now obey God in a way that pleases him. But before becoming a Christian, you cannot do any of those things. So, the question that asks, you know, where does free will come in? It basically presupposes something which doesn't exist. We do not have free will. Even as a believer, we aren't unlimited in our freedom. Even God is not unlimited in his freedom. So you could say, where does our limited free will, if you want to put that, if it's limited, it's not really free, where does our limited will come in? And then you could say, well, we are free to rebel against God continuously before being saved. And then after being saved, we have a choice. We are freed up and can obey God, and are free to do those things that God allows us to do. Okay, moving on. The question also asks this, where does free will start and end in this? And again, um, this, I, they didn't really define it, would be the process of salvation, I, I'd imagine. And the other question captured it, do we choose Christ by free will or are we predestined? And uh, we've already answered the free will, as we have seen, is really a misnomer. Before being saved, we are unable to understand the word of God. We can't please God. And so that's, that's clear from the scriptures. But the question is this, and there's something good in here that we need to talk about. Now, <clears throat> if we were to just survey people here, And we know the scriptures say there are none who seek after God. No, not even one. We've seen that from Romans 3.10, for example. Men love darkness rather than light, John John 3.19 says, and they don't come to the light, the truth. And yet all of us, if we had a testimony, would say this. You know, I I sought God. I I hungered for God. And um, I started searching for God, and, and I got saved, and... How can it be true that there are none who seek after God when I did, and pretty much everybody I know did? See, that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? An apparent contradiction. It's not a real contradiction. It just seems to be strange that the scriptures would say, there are none who seek after God, and yet all these people have sought him and become saved. 
And see, this is the part that a lot of people don't understand about salvation. And the reason they don't understand it is because they put themselves on the throne when it comes to salvation instead of putting God on the throne when it comes to salvation. Men on their own, and I would emphasize on their own, do not seek God. They seek God in response to God's grace, in response to God's grace. The freedom or ability to believe in Christ and understand the gospel begins when God, by the Holy Spirit, gives you the grace and the faith and the mercy and the illumination and grants you repentance leading to salvation. Then you respond. Of course, when we were, we're being drawn, we don't, we don't know what's going on. We don't know any of that. All we know is we start getting hungry for God. And so we think it's coming from us, but really it's coming from God. And so let's look at a few scriptures and just um, notice how this works. In Romans 3, 10 through 11, and I just want to read these verses here so you can keep this. That's why I said it's important to understand man and sin before you get to the place where you start looking at um, salvation. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none none who does good, not even one. Okay, that's what it says. Keep that in mind. No one sees God on their own. Men only see God in response to God first seeking them. And that's the important thing to remember. First, let's see how God grants unbelievers the ability to understand the gospel so they can be saved. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 11... This is what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 11, 25. <clears throat> Jesus said, it says, at, at, that, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, he's praying, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these Things, this is the gospel message, from the wise and intelligence and have revealed them to infants. Speaking of believers or people who are humble and contrite of spirit. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and here it is, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal himself. That's what you want to underline. No one can know Christ unless it is granted or willed by the Son. If you were to turn over to Matthew 13... This is in uh, the section dealing with the parables. In verse 11, Jesus, of course, was speaking to parables of the multitudes. And, and uh, of course, the multitudes who, for the most part, were unbelieving. They just said Jesus is a novelty and wanted to be fed and healed. Um, they weren't believing. They were just fascinated. He was a novelty. And so they, the disciples come up to, to Jesus and say, you know, why, why are you... Why are you speaking to them in parables? I mean, why, why not just tell them out plainly? And this is what Jesus says in verse 11. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Did you see that? Pretty clear. It says it twice. To you it has been granted. To them it has not been granted. God is the one who grants ability for people to understand the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, it says this, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, now listen to this, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Notice what God does here. He grants people repentance so they can understand the truth. That is what God does. Of course, from the person who is getting repentance granted to them, all of a sudden they just have this incredible urge to turn from their sin and turn to God. And finally they, they begin to undersee the gospel and they understand that Christ died for them and they receive Christ. And from their perspective is, I got hungry, I got enlightened, and I sought God and he saved me. But what's happening behind the scenes is, is God is giving that person the grace and the faith and granting them repentance so that they can understand the truth of the gospel and be saved. Another classic text is in Acts 14. In Acts 14, the story is about Lydia, or Acts 16, rather, verse 14. The story is about a woman named Lydia. She was the um, seller of purple fabrics, the text says. A worshiper of God was listening, and listen to what it says. Paul's preaching the gospel, he's preaching the word of God, that Christ is the Messiah, that he died, buried, and rose again, and says this, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God when Lydia was listening through the Holy Spirit, opened her heart. And if you want to read more about this, you can read 1 Corinthians 2. It goes down. The whole section is about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. Men on their own don't see God. And just as the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel, so he opens everybody else's heart. Because men are spiritually dead and they cannot understand the things of God without the intervention of God. Now, there was another related question, and we'll try and round these all up at the end. Another related question was asked this. If we are predestined, then do we really need to worry about going out of our way to evangelize? This is one of the great arguments of those who don't want to accept predestination. They don't want God to be sovereign. They don't want God to choose people and determine who will be saved. And so they, they always pendulum the other side and go, well, you know, if God is sovereign and he chooses people, then why do we even need to witness? I mean, why, not, why do we need to bother? Why do we need to worry um, going out of our way to evangelize? And then the question continues, if people are predestined and will automatically be saved, how somehow before they die anyway? You know, if they're going to just automatically be saved, then why even bother? Again, this question reveals some misunderstandings. First, we must understand this. Predestination is a doctrine given to believers for their encouragement. Never do the scriptures apply predestination to the non-elect, unbelievers, unsaved people. You can go through the whole Bible and it always addresses it in relationship to those who are already saved. And then as soon as you take this doctrine, which the Bible only applies to those who are already saved, and then you take that doctrine and you try and apply it to people who aren't saved, it will give you a brain hemorrhage. Because you start thinking, that doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work. It's for believers. But then see... Because we're so curious, we, we like to contrast, well, then if that is true, and then we try and make extrapolations, you know, we want to go where the scriptures don't go. So predestination, just keep that in mind, is not a message for unbelievers. Now, if you try to apply it to unbelievers and start saying, well, if predestined, then what about these unbelievers? You really are going to get a brain knot. Well, let's just answer the question anyways, and we'll try and make the knot undone. If we are predestined, then do we really need to worry about example, uh, uh, evangelizing? Well, I would say this. First, worry and anxiety are sins, and we don't have to worry about anything. So don't worry. Okay. Secondly, this is important, we don't evangelize people so we can save them. We evangelize people so God can save them. That is important. 
Even if God just said, I want you to go do this, and you couldn't see any purpose, would you still do it? Yeah. Why? Because God says so. And see, a lot of people, especially, you know, and I've been in Baptist churches where, you know, you, if you, you know, lead somebody to the Lord, it's like, you know, you get, you know, a notch on your sword or something. You know, yeah, I you know, led three people to the Lord. Um, oh, really? You grant them repentance? Do you open their heart to receive the gospel message? Really? You are powerful. You almost sound like God. No. Paul makes it clear that the one who plants and the one who waters isn't anything, nothing, but God who causes growth. And so it's important to understand that evangelism is something God calls us to do, and if we don't do it, we are sinning against God. Now, it just so happens that God has chosen to use the gospel and evangelism to bring people repentance. And it's a great privilege that God gives us to participate in the plan of redemption. He calls you and he calls me to share the gospel with all creation, with all those in our sphere of influence. And then he wants us to do that. And as we do that, he then uses that to bring people to repentance. That is his plan. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God is well pleased to use it, the evangelizing of the lost, to save those who believe, the preaching of the message, which in their eyes is often foolish. So sharing the gospel is kind of like passing out invitations to the great wedding feast. God says, here's the invitations, go pass them out to everybody. And so you go out as a servant of God, passing out the invitations, the gospel message. And some people receive the gospel message, and they show up in heaven. Other people reject it. But whether they receive it or they reject it is inconsequential to you. You're just responsible to get the messages out to hand out the invitations. God is responsible to make sure they either accept it and get there or they don't because God has not chosen them. So it just so happens while many receive the invitations, only a chosen few, those whom God has extra mercy and grace towards by his choosing and granting them repentance and giving them faith and grace and mercy, they believe. The rest perish because they choose not to receive the gospel message. Now, here's another question. How does the Great Commission work with predestination? You can see all of these questions are all twangled up here in predestination. Does our evangelism have anything to do with who gets saved, or is it just an act of obedience? The answer is neither. Neither. It kind of contrasts those two. Listen. It is a both-and proposition because God has chosen to use the gospel to save those who believe, right? And so it's not, is it this or is it this? It's both. You have the privilege of sharing the gospel with the lost, and God uses the gospel to bring people to salvation. That's why we share the gospel. You evangelize as an act of obedience and worship, knowing that God uses the gospel to save those he has chosen to believe. He does not increase his list of those chosen before the foundation of the world based off of your evangelism. That is a determined number. You can't add more people to whom God has predestined to be in heaven. It is a fixed number. We don't know what that number is. Here's another question. Do all aborted or miscarried children go to heaven or just those who are predestined? Now that is a question. The best answer is to say the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say. Now, I wanted to address this in a more thorough way, so this is what I did. This is my escape goat. I wrote the whole Calvary Review on this question. So, we are, all I'm going to say is this. The Bible doesn't say explicitly, but we know things about God. God is compassionate. He is merciful. He is gracious. We also know God is just and he is holy. We also know that no one deserves to be saved 
But God saves those who are unworthy. We know that God has a place in his heart for the orphan and widow and the helpless. And we also know that God does everything right. And he is just. And by no means will he allow the guilty to go unpunished. So, look in the Calvary Review and you can see all the scriptures and uh, find out about that. Because uh, it would take us a whole time just to go through that one question. The fourth question in the series, I'm kind of grouping them. You're thinking, well, that's, isn't this like the eighth? Well, it's kind of like the fourth different one. What about those who never hear the gospel? The American Indians, the natives in the jungle... Could they be saved somehow without hearing the gospel? Do they have an opportunity of being saved? If not, are some destined to hell without the hope of salvation? And this is another great question. Now, this is the age-old question, what about the natives in Africa? And I always like to say, do you know any? Um, does everyone have a chance to be saved is one of the questions. And does God ever save anyone apart from the gospel message? And does God predestine people to hell all these questions are related, and I would encourage you again to get the tapes on man's sin and salvation because we explain them in great detail and we give lots of scriptures so you can study. You can get a study guide and the tapes and go through it all. First, we'll answer it as quick as we can. We must understand that no one deserves to be saved. No one deserves to be saved. Nor do they deserve an opportunity to be saved. And it is fair that no one receives an opportunity to be saved. Okay, well, a lot of times we come to the issue thinking, well, it's not fair if someone doesn't get to hear the gospel and they have to suffer hell for not believing. Who says? It's not what the scriptures say. Fair is that all of us, what? Perish in hell. That is fair. Salvation is by grace and mercy, not works. Grace and mercy are unmerited, undeserved, unearned favors of God. And as soon as you start saying, this person deserves to hear the gospel, then what you're saying is the method of salvation is something deserved. And if it's deserved, then it's not by grace or mercy. It's some wage, something that God owes us, and he does not owe it to us. No one has ever been saved because they deserve to be saved. Only unworthy, rebellious sinners who hate God and are hostile to God and who love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil get saved. Only those kind of people. The rest don't exist. Third, what is the fair, what is it, why is it fair, uh, or what is fair is that men Suffer, suffer hell for their sins. That is the only fair thing. And you can't expect anything that is given by grace. And this is just such an important thing that I even hate to even bring it up. Because a lot of people are thinking, well, why is that? It just, we can't go into it all right now. If it's of grace, it's not to be expected. You can't demand grace. You can't demand mercy. You can only plead for it and ask for it. But you can't demand it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that. So keep those truths in mind. And having those truths in mind, that no one deserves to be saved, that men deserve to suffer hell for their, for their sins, and that you can't expect and demand something that is by grace, and turn to Romans 1. And we'll look at a couple texts here and... See what we can find out here in Romans 1. Romans 1, and we're just going to pick out some things here. This is about Paul, and he's talking about the gospel, how he preached it, and how the wrath of God abides on men. And he is explaining here why the wrath of God abides on men. And he says this in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then he goes on to say, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Second time you said that. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Go down to verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Look at 2, chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, he says these things, and this is what he's saying. This is in a nutshell. Why are men, even the natives in Africa, without excuse? They don't need to to hear the gospel in order to be punished by God. They don't need it. They are without excuse because Paul lists three general categories of truth. One, God's in, eternal, invisible, and divine, divine nature and attributes can be seen through creation in what has been made. Secondly, God has written his law on everyone's heart. And third, God has given us a conscience by which that law either accuses or else defends us and tells us what is right and wrong in a general sense. All men have all of that in them. They all do. But then, this is what we read, if you just... Ten things that all men do with that information. Not just some men, but all men do. Without the intervention of God, this is what all men do with that information. First, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Two, they refuse to not honor God. Third, they do not give thanks to God. Four, they become futile in their speculations. Five, their foolish heart is darkened by their unbelief. Six, they profess to be wiser than God. Seven, they exchange the glory of God um, for that which is created. Eight, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Nine, they choose not to acknowledge God any longer. And ten, they choose to go against the ordinance of God written on their heart and encourage others to do the same. This is why all men, even the natives in Africa and anybody else on the face of the planet who has ever lived, is without excuse. Because God has made these things evident to men. And Paul says they have taken these things and suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And this is why God has to elect certain people. If God waited around for people to seek him and he didn't give anybody grace, and didn't give everybody mercy, and he didn't grant them repentance, and he didn't give them the ability to understand his word, he would wait for a long time and no one would come. And so he has to choose certain people, because if he didn't, no one would come. Because men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now the other part of the question that was asked is this, are people ever saved apart from preaching of the gospel? And the answer is no. Some teach that, oh, you can be the good Buddhist, you can be the good Mormon, you can be a good Jehovah's Witness, and God will save you if you have good intentions. This is a lie. This is a huge lie. If people could come to the Lord without the gospel, then he would not have sent us out to preach the gospel to all creation. If people could come to the Lord without hearing the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, then there would be no reason to send all these missionaries out and go through all this Bible study and language interpretation. We could all just hang around and just wait for God to save us. But, of course, he doesn't do that. He has told us to go out and preach the gospel because it is his divine chosen method to bring to repentance those who believe. Turn to Romans 10, verse 14. We're hurrying as fast as we can. Um, Try and get through all these. 
Romans 10, 14 through 17. The question being asked is, do you need to have the gospel preached or can God save people sometimes without it? See what Romans says in verse 14 of Romans 10. How, will, how then will they call upon whom, him who they have not believed? And the answer is they can't. How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And the implied answer is they can't. And how will they hear without a preacher? And the answer is they can't. How will they preach unless they are sent? The answer is they can't. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed a report. And then verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by what? Good intentions? No, the word of Christ. That is the only way a person can be saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, just listen to these, I'll rattle them off. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he uses the definite article there, the power of God. Not a, one of many powers of God, the. God uses Jesus Christ and Him crucified to save those who believe. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Now listen to this. Which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved. That's how you're saved. Through the gospel preached. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is imperishable, or perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. You have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. And so people, this is why it is so critical that all of us share our faith and why all of us go out and preach the gospel and why we have missionaries and why we send them into the jungle to learn languages and translate it and teach people how to read it and share the gospel with them. Because without the gospel, there is no hope of salvation. I'm just going to take you to one more text. Turn to Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and you can see how this is. In Ephesians 2, Paul had just gotten through in the first 10 verses talk about how we were dead in our sins, but because of God's love, mercy, and grace, his undeserved favor towards us, he saved us, he seated us in the heavenly place with Christ, for by grace you are saved and you are created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he says this in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is the uncircumcision Gentiles by the so-called circumcision Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, that is before the coming of Christ, before the gospel went out to all nations, before that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says here, you Gentiles, which would include the natives in Africa and everybody, when before the gospel went out, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, God's chosen nation, whom he chose to speak and bring the Messiah. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That is, they did not have the word of God, which is what saves you. And all of this made them, at the end of the verse, having no hope without God in the world. If people don't hear the gospel, they have no hope. And that is why the Great Commission is such a serious command. Because God chooses the gospel to bring people to salvation. And that's why all of us need to be diligent to share the gospel so that people can come to the Lord. So the Bible never says that also God destines men to hell. It says he predestines people to salvation and says that he has appointed or destined hell for sinners. 
but he has not destined sinners for hell. In other words, he does not, before the foundation of the world, say, I will make this person a sinner. I will make this person rebel against me. No, what he has destined or predestined is everyone who does sin is going to be punished in this way. Then we are sinners and we earn hell for ourselves. And all of us, before even even believers, are all, Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians 2, are all by nature children of wrath. So all of humanity at before coming to Christ, is all under the wrath of God. And then by God's grace, some are predestined to salvation. So the natives in Africa are like all the Gentiles. They are without excuse. They don't deserve to hear the gospel. If the gospel isn't preached, they are like all the nations have always been, even from New Testament times that did not have the word of God. They are without hope in the world. And you may think, but Jack, man, that is a, that's heavy duty. I mean, that is just like a major thing here. I mean, you know, are you, you mean to tell me? I'm not trying to tell you anything. I'm just trying to let you see what the Word of God says. It says they're out hope, without hope. Now, if that bothers you, then you need to be diligent to share the gospel. You need to be diligent to support missions. You need to be diligent to learn the Word of God. Because it is the power of God for all who believe. Now next week we're going to get to some other questions related to salvation and try and finish them up. We're going to look at repentance, what is sanctification, what is justification, what about losing your salvation, and things like that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful that uh, all these great questions were asked. And it's a little frustrating trying to answer them in a thorough way in such a short time. Father, I pray that those who have more questions about this would get the tapes and, Father, get the study guide and listen to them. Father, that they would study your word diligently and, Father, keep asking questions. It's so important that we ask so that we can receive. Father, if there is somebody here who's, who's maybe realizing that they, uh, they need you, that they need Jesus Christ, Father, maybe they see their sin like never before and their hearts are accusing them right now. They know they're living in rebellion and they know they have been living in rebellion. Father, may you grant that person your grace so that they might see the light of the gospel. And Father, that they might come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to be saved from the consequences of their sin, that they might live to please you forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.